My name is Neil, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open up the scriptures this morning. Oh, before I do, my notes remind me. Last week, um, if we can get that slide up, because my phone's not ready yet, I just want to say thanks to Nikki Chapman, to Leslie, he, Bryn Weeking, Jeannie Powell, and Jeannie Pettigrew for that charcuterie table, which was fabulous. It's our hope this Christmas season that everybody who comes to FBC um, experiences friendship and conversation around a table out in the courtyard. So looking forward to the rest of our times uh, on Sundays together. Now, all right, we can go on to the next slide. Thanks. The, the Gospel of Luke famously records that holy night in Bethlehem where the angels sang and the shepherds tromped all around uh, but, and Mary labored to birth Jesus Christ and there was chaos in and around the manger. But once the shepherds finally left and which mother doesn't want a bunch of smelly men to finally leave the delivery room? <laughs> once they left, Mary quietly pondered and treasured these significant moments in her heart. And I can see Mary sipping her coffee, thinking about the presence of Jesus in her life. And just like Mary in those pondering moments, I would like to spend our time together pondering the words of John chapter 1. And this is actually the real reason that I brought my hot chocolate mug, to help me slow down during this service and to ponder. If you're not already a note taker, today is a good Sunday. This sermon is a good sermon to find something to take notes with so you can record some things that get your attention now and then ponder them later. So pull out your phone app or grab a, a pen in the chair rack in front of you and scribble on that connect card. We're reflecting on John chapter 1 during Advent because of four things. Four things. First is that some of us are busy with present shopping and Christmas parties and school events, and that we forget that God is here with us. The second, some of us are lonely while others are busy with their families and their friends. And we wonder, wait, I'm here. I'm part of this church family of God. A loving God loves me. Shouldn't I not be lonely because God is with me? At three, some of us are disillusioned or discouraged or disappointed or doubtful. And number four, God has a deep and pervasive longing to be with us. And that's why we're reflecting on these verses in John. My honest hope is that as we open these scriptures and ponder them, that the Holy Spirit will encounter us and will show us what is invisibly all around us, that God is indeed with us. So take up a Bible, a turn to John chapter 1. It's in the second half of the Bible, and if you're grabbing one of these blue Bibles in the chairs around you. It's on page 886, John chapter 1. I'm going to pray, and then I will read it for us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you show us that you are with us? Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness 
about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. The text we are focusing on begins in verse 9. And just like Mary pondered in her heart, I'd like us to take time to consider these verses together. Shall we? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, John is captivated by this word light. Seven times in nine verses, John speaks of Jesus being the light coming into the world to shine in our darkness. Now, Pastor Steve and Bronwyn have done a great job helping us understand the word light in the past two sermons. So watch those sermons on YouTube if you missed them. But let's consider this verse and what, the, what is new about this verse in John chapter, in verse 9. Sorry, let me say that again. Let's consider what is new that John brings in verse 9. He introduces a new facet that he hasn't mentioned before. The word true. You see it there? True light. True light was coming into the world. The adjective true is the Greek word alethinos. The alethinos light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You might also know that the noun truth in Greek is aletheia. This is a beautiful word. It's a culture-shaping word. Just as in our society today, where truth is such an important topic, is there absolute truth? Is there a set of priorities or a set of propositions that are universally true for all cultures everywhere in all times, like the propositions in uh, John 3.16, that there is a God, and this God does so love this world that he has made, and that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to save everyone these absolute claims of truth? Or is truth relative? And you can have your truth and I can have my truth. Jesus might be true for you, but he's not true for me, and that's just fine. You know, our current culture goes one step further. My truth is simply how I feel and what I want right now. And your truth is how you feel and what you want right now. Just like it's on the fourth day, Aletheia was at the forefront of people's minds in the first century. And I wonder how they would have responded to John's claim. Now, Rome was the superpower, but Greek philosophy and culture set the tone for society. The famous Greek philosopher Plato taught that there were two things in the world. There was the aletheia, and there was the material. The true reality in the heavenly realms, where the true form of a thing existed, and then everything else down here on earth, these mere imperfect representations of the thing. Up there in the heavenlies right now is an Aletheia chair, a true chair. And all the things that we're sitting on now are mere uh, copies, imperfect copies, maybe not as comfortable copies of that chair up there. 
how would the philosophers respond to John's claim that true light, the very essence of light, was coming into the world as Jesus Christ? Now, truth was paramount not only in philosophy in the first century, but also in the mystery religions. The Lucinian mysteries, the Mithra, many versions of Gnostic religions were very, very popular and very secret. They called them mystery or religions for a reason. And they thought that only the select, the initiated, were worthy of receiving the truth. These religions viewed Aletheia as synonymous with the divine. And these religions taught that in order to be saved, humans needed to transcend our humanness and participate in the divine Aletheia. To know how to do that, of course, you had to go through their secretive initiation rites. How would the mystics respond to John's claim that salvation didn't come from select humans transcending their humanness to grasp divine Aletheia, but that divine Aletheia had transcended the divinity to grasp humanity? And finally, the Jewish nation. Consider uh, Philo of Alexandria. Philo was a Jewish philosopher, and he pulled together Greek philosophy and Jewish faith And he wrote only a couple decades before John wrote his gospel. And get this, Philo wrote about the Logos. Remember verse 1 of chapter 1? In the beginning was the Logos. In Philo's estimation, the Logos was an emanation of God by which God's creative work in the world and in the universe was actualized. Philo and most Jews believed that the, the Aletheia Logos, the true word, was an emanation of God by which God accomplished all of his work. And they believed that this was the Torah, the law that was given to Moses. Any Jewish believer could point to the law and the prophets and say, the aletheia of God. How would John's own Jewish community respond to John's claim that God's true word had come in the form of Jesus Christ? Any intellectual, any mystic, any Jewish compatriot reading John's gospel would pause over his claim about Aletheia. And John's gospel does not back down from making truth claims. I went through the gospel of John, notice these truth claims. John chapter 1 verse 9, the Alethinos light was coming into the world. In John 6 23, Jesus says that that God is sending true bread, Alethinos bread, and that he himself is the bread. In John chapter 8, 16, Jesus says that I am the Alethinos judge. In John chapter 14, 6, Jesus just says, I am the Alethinos. I am the truth. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the Alethinos vine. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus prays that all of us, that the whole world would come to know the Alethinos God. Imagine you're a first century professional and you're reading through the Gospel of John for the first time or you're hearing it being read out loud and you get to the account of Pilate and Jesus in his trial in John chapter 18. Jesus looks right at Pilate and he says to him, to Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And you know what Pilate said to him? Very modern. He says, what is truth? And then Pilate turns and walks away. 
To the Greco-Roman world, the gospel of John makes a radical claim about truth. To the eastern and western worlds, to the northern and southern hemispheres, to those who are wondering if Christianity really is true or not, this gospel makes a radical claim about truth. The the claims about Christ are incompatible with relative truth, with the the in-the-moment-feels truth. Either Jesus is absolutely true, or it's all make-believe. And how do you respond? There are times when I find myself wondering, can this really be true? And in those times, I turn to John chapter 16. Jesus is in the upper room with his friends. He knows that they are about to completely lose their faith in him when he gets arrested. And in that moment, around that dinner table, when their experience of God is about to cause them to doubt, when they experience God to be powerless on the cross and conclude that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah after all, and their faith is completely deconstructed, in that moment, Jesus tells them this. When the spirit of truth comes, which is after they've lost all their faith, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Left off a key point right there. He will guide you into all truth. Holy Spirit, right now would you guide us into all truth. Okay, we have savored one word. And I suppose we should move on a bit more quickly through the next few words. So, turn with me um, as we keep going through this passage. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Now, those are concepts, again, that Brahman and Steve have discussed in the last few weeks. Do you remember everything is not awesome? Lego hands and Lego Jesus. It's worth rewatching. Verse 10. Yet the world did not know him. Yet. Ah, here we have the divine Logos, God himself, the source of life coming to earth, shining in the darkness, not overcome by the darkness, bringing light to answer all our questions. The very light and truth that philosophers and mystics devoted their lives to discover, the very person that Jewish people faithfully hoped for and prayed would come, and he is coming. This is God's big plan, his huge all-eggs-in-one-basket plan to save the world, and yet... The youth culture has a word for this situation. It's oof. It gets worse in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oof. His own family, his own Jewish people, his own creation... You know, it's interesting that Christianity puts zero effort to hide the fact that not everyone believes the truth claims about Jesus. Christianity puts it in the forefront. Here are a set of truth claims, and here are the people who doubt them. We want you to know that. Who else does that? Republicans don't do that. Democrats don't do that. Who here has a driver's license? Raise your hand if you have a driver's license. Okay. 
quite a few of you have a driver's license. When you come to a stop sign, answer honestly, do you fully stop so that the brake pedal goes all the way down and the car kind of rocks back just a little bit? Or do you mostly stop? We won't define what mostly stop is. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand and answer that question. High schoolers, when you learn to drive, anybody in high school here? Raise your hand. I see some few of you in high school. When you learn to drive, some of you recently, um, does your instructor say to you that when you come to a stop sign, you have to come to a complete stop? Yes, they do. And then do they say, but actually many people disagree. I just want you to know that. (laughs) Of course they don't. Please, always come to a complete stop. But the scriptures do. The scriptures are refreshingly honest about people's experience or lack thereof. They highlight people did not receive him. Now, receive is an interesting word. The Greek word means to draw close, to come into, to allow to be changed by. And I was surprised to discover this week that the word, that just as the word true is a key word in first century philosophy and religion, religion, so is the word receive. In Greek philosophy, they describe the student as the one receiving the person or the student is the one receiving the teaching and instruction and the guidance of the teacher. In mystery religions, the word is used to describe the relationship between the novice submitting to the guide who would disclose the secret rituals and beliefs. And in Jewish practice, it was common parlance to say, I receive the word of the rabbi, which he received from Moses or God himself. So John is speaking the language of the intelligentsia, the spiritually curious, and the faithful of his day. Now, when Eugene Peterson wrote this verse for a modern 1990s audience in his message paraphrase, he tapped into the modern focus on desire. And Eugene Peterson writes of this verse, he came to his own people and his own people did not want him. Why don't people in the first or the 21st century receive Jesus? I sat down this week and I came up with a list of reasons. It's a long list. I won't go into detail on each of these, but here are a few reasons. Number one, we don't want to change. Receiving Jesus, just like receiving a teacher, means that we will have to change over the course of our lives Jesus will ask us to love people we prefer to hate, to forgive people we'd like to crucify, to give when we'd rather hoard, to, be humble, to humble ourselves when we'd rather have the spotlight, to lament when we'd rather self-medicate, to see the value in people we deem unworthy. Trust when anxiety seems more natural. Base our worth on God's love, not on people's praise. And do what is right in God's eyes, not just what is right in my own eyes. Receiving Jesus will change us. We're going to have to let go of greed and lust and lies and self-focus. And instead, let God shape us to be generous and satisfied and honest and focused on the goodness of God and his mission in the world. Receiving Jesus will change us. And many people are too comfortable and they don't want to change. For people who are longtime Christians like me, this is true of us. It's common to get set in our ways, our patterns of living. And sometimes we don't want to follow Jesus and change, even if we discover that Jesus is leading us in a new direction. 
And again and again, Jesus offers us to come and be with us if we will receive him. A second reason people don't receive. We don't believe it's true. And I understand there are many reasons for doubt and disbelief. But before you completely reject God, I want to encourage you to consider carefully the God that you disbelieve in. Is the God actually revealed, is it the God that's actually revealed in Scripture? Uh, N.T. Wright is one of our century's premier biblical scholars, and he's a devout follower of Jesus. And he tells the story of a student who came to him after one of his lectures at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and the student said that he does not believe in the Christian God. N.T. Wright asked him to say more about this God that he doesn't believe in. And after hearing the student's description of God, Wright said, I don't believe in that God either. Is it possible that when we doubt God, it is because our vision of God is incomplete? Reason number three, similar to number two, we don't realize what God is offering. We don't realize just how good it is to receive Jesus, and so we don't do it. In his book, simply titled With, the author Sky Jathani compares this experience of not having a full picture of who God is to the Gala Placidia, which is a tomb in Ravenna, Italy. And I'd like to read to you at length the opening account of Sky's book where he describes this experience. Here we go. 1,500 years ago, the emperor of Rome built a tomb for his beloved sister. The small building was designed in the shape of a cross with vaulted ceilings covered with mosaics of swirling stars in an indigo sky. The focal point of the mosaic ceiling was a depiction of Jesus, the good shepherd, surrounded by sheep in an emerald paradise. The mausoleum of Gala Placidia still stands in Ravenna. It has been called by scholars the earliest and best preserved of all mosaic monuments and one of the most artistically perfect. But visitors who have admired its mosaics in travel books and on postcards will be disappointed when they enter the mausoleum. The structure has only tiny windows, and what light does enter is usually blocked by a mass of tourists. The most artistically perfect mosaic monument, the inspiring vision of the good shepherd in a starry paradise, is hidden behind a veil of darkness. The impatient who leave the chapel will miss a stunning unveiling. With no advance notice, spotlights near the ceiling are turned on when a tourist finally manages to drop a small coin into the metal box along the wall, and the lights illuminate the iridescent tiles of the mosaics. The dull, hot darkness overhead becomes a starry sky, a blue cupola with huge shimmering stars that seems startlingly close. And ah, comes the sound from below. And then the lights go out, and again there's darkness darker than ever before. After seeing the mosaic, one visitor wrote, I have never seen anything so sublime in my life. It makes me want to cry. And then Sky writes, Like the tourists in Ravenna, many come into Christian faith with great expectations. They have heard stories of jubilation and salvation, of the power to overcome this world and experience the divine in inexpressible ways. But once inside the ancient halls of Christianity, many are disappointed. Where is the light? Where is the illumination? 
Our hearts seek God with the goodness and beauty and justice and peace we've been told he provides, but he often remains hidden behind the shadow cast by an evil world. Many come with a holy desire to know God, to experience his presence in their lives, to be cared for like sheep entrusted to a meek and gentle shepherd. But this is not what they see or experience. In fact, they may leave church without ever seeing a beautiful and enthralling vision of life with God. The lights are never turned on to reveal the beauty that is present just behind the shadows. I can't recommend this book highly enough. It was a breath of fresh air when I first read it in 2014. And to see what Jathani sees as to why God is worth our worship and Christianity is worth our time, you'll have to read the rest of his book as he develops his thesis over the course of nine chapters. Our text, however, is strikingly brief. They did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. And there were some. To those who are saying yes, Jesus, I want you to be with me. I receive you. I want you to be my guide into all truth. To these people who believed. You know, believing is an act of receiving. Receiving is an act of believing. This is, in fact, the whole purpose of John's gospel. It's been said of this gospel that chapters 1 to 12 could be titled, His own did not receive him. And chapters 13 to 21 could be titled, But to all who believed. John expresses his thesis in chapter 20, verse 31, when John says that he wrote the entire gospel account to quote, or quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in his name. And so if you're here today and you want a brighter picture of who Jesus is, I invite you this Advent to take a fresh look. Take up John and his offer in this book and ponder if the Gospel of John portrays Jesus in a way that isn't better than you've realized before. And then let me extend to you my own offer. I would be glad to meet with you and anybody else who's interested for a book club on the Gospel of John or a book club on the book with. Just send me an email. We can get together Um, Find a time that works for us and talk and savor these truth claims together. Well, our savoring time is coming to a close. Uh, But I would be remiss not to point out two more things. So very briefly. First, notice the word all. But to all who received him. To all who do receive him. Not just to the intelligent or the mystics or the well-bred. All. Each. Everyone. If your Thanksgiving meal was picture-perfect Americana, or you quickly ate in your apartment alone, or you ate food served to you from a soup kitchen, if you often feel dissonance with your body and panic in your mind, or you're as content with yourself as a golden retriever, If you are from any country and any clan and any class, the offer is extended to you and to me to receive. It's for all. And the second thing to point out, 
Notice this phrase, he gave the right to become children of God. I could preach a whole sermon on this phrase alone. I mentioned the philosophers, the mystics, and the Jewish people of the first century, and we don't have time to explore the largest cultural force of the day, the household, which was ruled by the paterfamilias, filled with wives and children and slaves. And aside from being the paterfamilias, the father, the next best option for a person was to be included as a child. Pastor Bruce Milne puts it this way. In a world where rank counted for everything, the majority of the population were slaves without rights or freedoms. The gospel carried an immense appeal as a message which promised to all people, irrespective of rank, nothing less than personal membership within the family circle of God. Nobodies were in a moment transformed into somebodies. Christians are nothing less than the personally valued, dearly loved children. All people are welcome. You might have low self-esteem. You might think you're not worthy of God's attention. And yet here is Jesus coming to be with you. Yes, with you. If you receive him, he will welcome you as a child of God, the highest rank possible. You know, if you're a child of the Redenbaugh family, that's my family, you get to eat at least one bite of everything on your plate. You get to fit into our five-seater car. And you get to enjoy the home that my wife and my parents and my siblings create for our Redenbaugh clan. Your parents will read you books. They'll play soccer with you. They'll cook omelets with you. And they'll take you on trips to Joshua Tree National Park. But how much better is being a child of God in God's family? Derek, Van, come on up. One of the ways we receive children into the family of God at our church is through child dedications. And perhaps you were here in October when we dedicated Mishinu and Maui Hampton and Roberto Pereira. Um, here's a picture of them in that moment. Our church is committed to helping these kids, these kids, grow up receiving Jesus, knowing that he is with them, and being part of this whole church family. And when we dedicate a child, the pastor says words quoted from the book of Numbers, words that God instructed the priests to say to all God's people to remind them that in God's family, God is with us, and he's doing these things for us. And so I thought it would be appropriate to end our time together with this blessing. We bless these children with it, God blesses us with it. So church family, receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. This day and always. Church, as we close our service today, if you want to continue worship by giving, uh, you can do that online on the FPC website, or also there's boxes uh, all out through the back of the sanctuary, and also a QR code back there if you want to scan that uh, to give online as well. Also, uh, is there a uh, lot of things going on at FPC this time of year? Uh, so if you uh, got one of the handouts uh, when you wandered in, 
Uh, there are a lot of things on there, so you can check those out. But a couple things I'm going to highlight uh, from up here. First, Advent Guides. Uh, you can grab an Advent Guide there, out there in the lobby, on your way out. Uh, we are 10 days in, but just jump on in. Uh, you can do a couple days at a time to catch up, uh, but these are a joy to do uh, each day of this season. Also, next, I don't like rank the best announcements that we give, but these announcements, I would say, maybe personally, are some of my favorite things. So if you are a 7th to 12th grader, if you are a parent of a 7th to 12th grader, you're an aunt, an uncle, grandparent, guardian, whoever, if you have a next-door neighbor that is a 7th to 12th grader, if you run into a random 7th to 12th grader on the street, it might be a little weird, but you can invite them. We have a couple exciting events coming up. Uh, this week is our annual Christmas party. Uh, we will be in the youth room at 7 o'clock. It will be a good night. Lots of holiday treats. We're doing a white elephant gift exchange. We'll do some Christmas carols. Uh, you can wear a holiday sweater if you desire. Uh, and we'll end the night by reading from my favorite version of the Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. So uh, join us for that this Wednesday night. Uh, and then also on New Year's Eve, uh, we're excited uh, after a year off because I had COVID. Uh, we're back with our New Year's Eve party. We're calling it Countdown to 2024. It'll be here at FBC. Uh, it'll be a good night of movies and games and snacks, maybe a bonfire if it's not raining. Uh, it'll be a great time. So invite your friends. Uh, again, if you are not a 7th to 12th grader, invite any 7th to 12th grader that you know to these events. That'll be at 8 o'clock on New Year's Eve, and we'll go till 12.30 in the morning. All right, last thing, Christmas Eve service is coming up in two weeks, uh, so we want to invite you to that. Uh, this year it is on a Sunday, uh, so we're going to have our, our kind of regular time of 10 a.m. for Christmas Eve service, but then also we'll do a 5 p.m. service as well. These will be identical services. There'll be no kids ministry that morning, but we'll have some awesome coloring books and activities for them. There will be, uh, Derek will be leading us in some awesome acoustic Christmas carols, uh, and it'll be a great time. Uh, we'd love for you to join us either at 10 a.m. or 5 p.m. Following each service, uh, there will be some good goodies and treats and warm drinks out uh, in the courtyard for us to enjoy together. All right, uh, if you guys would all stand and receive this benediction before we go out to our week. So in this Advent season, may we see, feel, and share joy. And as you go into the wonder of God's creation, share joy with those that you meet. Amen. Have a good week. We'll see you next week.